during the break, some people mentioned that I mentioned slides. You can get it by, you can get uh, what we call, our, we call them our greatest hits. It's not just what I did today, but it's all the slides we get requested all the time. Hit this. It'll give you a chance to also get, if you'd like to, get information about the work we do, both from A Sloan Leadership and what I do at the Fuller Church Leadership Institute. We've got lots of opportunities to help you. You have lots of opportunities here in the city. So it's not so much that we're trying to give you more, but we just want to make sure that you stay connected to that. So if you hit the QR code, you'll get the slides as we go about that. I'm, I'm conscious that every time I speak after lunch, especially after fried chicken for crying out loud, how am I possibly going to keep you all awake? Um, is that um, the afternoon is always a challenge. Um, I, I said, uh, you saw in my bio, um, I was going to be a national park ranger, but I took biology after lunch and I slept through biology and got a really low grade. So I became a pastor. And um, so since I'm a Presbyterian, I believe that was preordained from the beginning of time. So I, I'm really actually very willing that if you need to fall asleep, you go right ahead. God might need you to have that this afternoon. And you can just sleep to the sound of my voice, which is really annoying. Um, if not, we'll try to, uh, try to do our best to get you through the next few moments thinking about this whole notion about the, what we call the crucible of leadership. So... Um, one of the hardest parts about leadership is what it does to you. Jim Miata, who is the president of Compassion International, was at a Fuller Board of Trustees meeting, and I was interviewing him when I was on, on the, the exec senior team there. And he said, Todd, the greatest danger of doing the work of God is how it can undo God's work in you. One of the hard parts about being a person who understands that your calling is to lead people through change and through transformation that even something like a church plant, that you almost there's almost an unconscious desire to say, oh, we'll start something new so that we don't have to deal with the resistance of the old traditional church until you realize the church is church and people are people and they're resistant anyway. That one of the hardest things is what it does to you, that you can show up as a failure of nerve or a failure of heart. And I hope you'll have some time to think about that. Maybe some of the kind of things you can support um, each other in and pray about. Uh, remember, um, resilience is the capacity to maintain core purpose and integrity. That's what happens when you have a failure of nerve or a failure of heart. You lose your core purpose. Your, your purpose wasn't just to sit here and uh, have people huddle up here in the wilderness and have a really good bonfire and tell stories about the promised land. Your purpose was to take these people through the wilderness to the promised land. Um, you're, you have a sense of missional reason and purpose for why you moved to this city, why you relocated your family, why people came with you to do this work. And the integrity is the values by which you do them through. One of the hardest parts about these, about, is the discernment that's needed. What are the values we have to hold on to? Uh, Jim, in the words of Jim Collins and Jerry Paris, once you're clear on what will never change, you then have to be prepared to change everything else. And most of us want that never change to be a much bigger circle than it turns out to be. But if we lose everything, we lose our sense of integrity in the middle of it. That's what happens when, when we are getting disrupted. That's what's at stake when we talk about resilience. Uh, what we discovered in the work that we started doing um, in the Canoe in the Mountains, there's a chapter on sabotage. And what I discovered is every place I went, they said, whatever you speak on, speak on the sabotage chapter. That's what people are experiencing. And so tempered resilience came out of that work with sabotage. And what we re began to realize was that resilience is a formation issue. It's not a 
suck it up, buttercup, do harder, try harder issue. It's not a matter of just try, trying harder. It's a matter of being trained and formed differently. And I want to talk about what that looks like together by taking you to a historical example that we just celebrated, the 60th anniversary of on Monday. On August 28, 1963, 250,000 people gathered in front of the Lincoln Memorial. Many of them came on church buses. A lot of them came in their Sunday best. They came from all over the country, but the vast majority of them came from the South and from the front lines of the civil rights movement. They came there as people who'd had experience. They'd come from the, from the protests and the marches and the lunch counters and the dogs and the hoses and the jails. And they gathered there in front of the Lincoln Memorial for what was called a March for Freedom and Jobs. It was meant to be a practical present demonstration about the need for not only civil rights, but for the kind of civil rights that would change people's lives. Speakers throughout the day, a, a whole category full of speakers, filled the, the Washington Mall with their eloquence. Mahalia Jackson, the gospel singer, got up and sang two songs. Roger Mudd of CBS said, all the speeches in all the world couldn't have done what those two songs did in the hearts of all those people. A Jewish rabbi got up and spoke, and then a man got up to introduce the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as the moral leader of our nation. He got up to do what was a five-minute prepared speech, a speech that he had been working on until four in the morning that day before. With his speechwriter, Clarence B. Jones, they had worked to be very diligent about the fact that they knew because of Dr. King's fame that there would be a tension upon this event and that anything that got accused for inciting any violence or riots or anything else would be blamed on them. So he used his PhD to lay out a very sober case. And the case in his talk was this. It was the United States of America was formed so that every citizen would have the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In the Emancipation Proclamation, those rights eventually began to be, to be passed on to its previously enslaved African-American citizens. But a hundred years later, a hundred years later, that group of folks still had not experienced the entire the, of the rights that they were needed, the, the promise of the nation. He said it'd been like they'd been given a promissory note that had been returned insufficient funds. And it was time for the United States to make good on its promises. It's time to pay up. That was his speech. And he had the experience that, believe it or not, you and I are probably really familiar with. The speech didn't work. It didn't get the response that he thought from everybody. And so he immediately began to go off script. And as he stepped off script and he began to speak, he heard behind him the voice of Mahalia Jackson, who yelled at him, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. She had heard him in Detroit, and he immediately stood up and launched into his translation of Isaiah 40. Clarence B. Jones was sitting behind him, turned to the person next to him and said, these people don't know it, but they're about to go to church. <laughs> and he says to them, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. What he says to these people gathered there together is because we believe that there is a God who will one day redeem this world down to the dirt, we go back to work. We go back to the protests and the marches and the lunch counters 
and the dogs and the hoses and the jails. This is the faith that I go back to the South with. With this faith, we'll be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we'll be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. For all of you who preach each week, you know this is a masterclass in preaching right here. This is parallelism. This is where they take two ideas that seem to be disconnected and you weave them together in such a way that your brain explodes. You pull together hewing and transforming stones and symphonies in such a way that helps us understand that if we can be people who look at this mountain of despair in a different way, and we become the kinds of people who can transform that mountain of despair into stones of hope, we can actually create an environment where the glory of the Lord will be seen. I don't know about you, but I can't read this passage without having First Peter reverberating in my heart. Come to him, a living stone, and let yourself as living stones be built into a dwelling place for God. Can you possibly believe that the place of resistance, like the fact that our African-American brothers and sisters have had 400 years of resistance, that the place of despair, like the despair you feel when you're trying to bring change and the very people who, who cheer you on to be a leader resist you, that that moment of despair, that mountain of despair can become the place where God's glory will be seen, God's presence will be revealed where all the earth shall see it, just like you will someday in the final days. But the question for us then becomes a different one. How do you hew stones of hope out of a mountain of despair? Hew is an amazing verb. It doesn't mean that we're going to destroy something. We're going to transform something. So how do we become a tool that can hew? Tools that hew are not sledgehammers, they're chisels. What he says to us at this moment is, if we believe that we can transform this world, then we can believe that with God's power, we can be the kinds of people who face that mountain of despair. And when you do it, you do not blow it up with dynamite. You do not bash it with a sledgehammer and you do not back down. You hew it, you transform it. You work with that resistance in such a way that something beautiful and new is formed in our midst. But it requires us to be a different kind of tool in the hand of God. So how do we become a people who can form resilience? That's the key thing. It's to be the transformation of our own lives as resilient people. It's not simply about finding resilience. It's not about digging deep within and trying harder and muscling it up, but it's about believing that it's a formation process that can, that can help us become these tempered tools. Resilience is formed in leaders to face resistance. And the key understanding is that resilience is formed in the crucible of leadership. In my book, Tempered Resilience, I go to some great length to talk about this formation process. I won't give it all to you today. If you're interested, you can certainly buy the book. But I do want to highlight a couple of things, particularly a couple of things that you can use even in this room and especially in associations like this. 
They can become kind of the, the qualities of ongoing formation for a group of people who have a passion for a city like we just prayed for, or who are aware of the challenges that even show up in things like demographics that we just heard, the characteristics that we can have in our midst that can form us into these kinds of tempered, resilient tools. So how does a tool become a tempered tool? That was the question I wanted to ask. How do you transform steel into a chisel? And to do so, I decided to explore blacksmithing. (laughs) I live in Los Angeles. There is a blacksmithing community in a section of Los Angeles that you can sign up for and take classes. There has not been a horse there in 100 years, but there are blacksmiths. And so I signed up for a class and I show up one Saturday morning for this class. I'm wearing jeans and a t-shirt. You go walking into the room. Immediately you look around and realize that this is a place where serious work is done. They hand you a clipboard. You sign your name on a line that says you understand that everything in this room can kill you. And if it doesn't kill you, it could take a finger or a toe or an eye. They tell you they're gonna give you protection to take care of yourself and they give you earplugs. Earplugs. That's all we got, earplugs. I'm thinking I'm going to get chain mail, leather, helmets, something. Nope. Jeans, t-shirt, earplugs. They hand you a a, kind of a, a pair of tongs. They hand you a piece of steel. They put you in front of a forge that's 2,000 degrees, and you stick that steel into the forge, and you're blacksmithing. I haven't even had a safety lecture yet, and I'm blacksmithing. And what I realized at this moment is that that experience of that steel going into that fire, that experience that I have of going into this experience that is way over my head, is the experience that every leader has when leading. The first thing that we learn about becoming resilient leaders is that leaders are formed in the leading. This is critical for us because what most of us believe is that we are formed for leading and then we will go be leading. It's also a way of saying that you can't learn leadership from a book or a workshop or a demon class, as a guy who writes books and teaches workshops and does demon. We can teach you the tools for leadership, but you don't learn leadership until you're leading. You don't learn resilience until you're facing the mountain of despair. Which means that if you find yourself in one of those moments where you wonder if you're beyond your capabilities, you are. And that's exactly why you're there. Leaders are formed in the leading. The second thing about this is that you become a leader right after you were really, really good at something that was not leading. I mean, think about how many of us became pastors or church planters because we were good preachers as if three points in a poem have anything at all to do with leading a people. That you get good at one thing. I run a program. Next thing you know, you're in charge of all the programs. Or I'm really good at pastoral care. And the next thing you know, you have to create a culture of care. They're totally different skill sets. At Fuller Seminary, when we had our last dean was hired as the dean of the School of Theology, uh, they, put out a, they put out this wonder. I love this guy, and I loved our dean. And they put out this wonderful uh, press release that says he has a 20-page CV. Do you know what a CV is, a curriculum vita? In academics, it goes like this. On the curriculum vita, it's like a resume, but every line is the title of an article, book, or chapter of a book. 
he had 20 pages of titles that he had produced as a scholar, and that's why we were proud to have him as our dean. 20 pages. That means he spent his entire adult life in a library surrounded by people who were shushing other people to make sure it didn't disturb him. That he got every resource he wanted. That he was never disturbed so that he could just sit there and be brilliant and write another article that would go off into the published ecosystem. Like smoke coming out of the Vatican. Poof, poof, poof. Another, another thing published. He was amazing. He didn't have an unpublished thought. And that's how he prepared to be the dean of a faculty that had to take a school through transition. And that's what you, has happened to you and I, too. We were good at one thing. And the next thing you know that we moved from not leading to leading. And all of a sudden, you started asking yourself, how did I get myself into this? I thought I was good at this. Why am I struggling? Because leaders are formed in the leading and you're never prepared for sabotage until you're facing the sabotage. Resilience is formed in the crucible of leadership, in the moment that you are facing. So the formation that you need is formation that must be real time as you're going through these challenges, as you're facing that resistance. This is a process like the honing or the taking care of or the forming of steel into a tool. It's a process of heating and holding and hammering and quenching. A process that transforms slowly, repetitively over time, that steel into a tool. I won't go through all of these today, but I wanna hit the first two because I think they're really important. And they're the kinds of things that you can even create within your network to be able to help you become more resilient people. If the first point is that leaders are formed in the leading, the second point is that strength is forged in self-reflection. Let me say it even more. Strength is forged in vulnerable self-reflection. Do you know how many people have told you stuff like, if you're a leader, you should fake it till you make it? The worst, new, the worst advice possible. People who fake it learn how to fake it and they never make it and they end up becoming broken people. The first responsibility of understanding how you become a truly tempered leader is that it starts in your vulnerable self-reflection. My father always likes to quote Harry Truman. If you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. What I want my dad to understand and leaders to understand is the heat of the kitchen is not hot enough. When you were in a blacksmithing class, they told us to put the steel into the fire, right? And then they actually started giving us a safety lecture and teaching us some other things that we were gonna learn along the way. The steel's in the fire, now we're learning. And about halfway through the process, they said, reach in and pull out the steel. Notice, it's the same steel gray color. It's still hard as steel. It's 700 degrees. It'll burn the skin off your hands. At this temperature, you can't make it into anything. It's just dangerous. And that's where many of us are. Many of us who've experienced sabotage and failures of nerve and failures of heart and resistance from people. And after a while, we've defended ourselves and we've said, don't worry, I'm fine. I'm, I'm good, I've got this, I got this covered. And what we start realizing is we're 700 degrees. 
We're not vulnerable enough or soft enough to let God continue to shape us. We're resistant to the vulnerability, and so we're just angry, and we're hot, and we're on fire, and we will be dangerous to people. This is one of the great scandals of leadership. When you hear well-known leadership people saying things like, there's no one I can learn from unless they have a bigger church than me. There's no one that I can learn from unless they've had more experience than me. There's no one around here that I can share myself with because they don't understand my experience. No, I've got to do this myself. Those are dangerous, dangerous people. They are 700 degrees. What we learn about adult formation is that you don't learn by experiences. You learn by reflecting on your experiences. John Dewey taught this as a principle of education that is even more clear with us in formation. Do you know how the worst part of your day is not the meeting that went really bad at 7 p.m.? The worst part of your day is what you do in your brain with that meeting at midnight. It's that internal experience of reflecting on that. And if you find yourself being defensive, angry, punishing, blaming, telling yourself you'll never put yourself through that again, that you'll find that you'll take, take it the wrong direction. But if instead you can find yourself in the middle of the night, in the middle of the vulnerability of that meeting that went so bad, asking what kind of formation you need to become the kind of leader who can lead better, then you're on the, on the right path. That vulnerability, that vulnerability that feels almost as if you are falling apart, is like the steel that gets to the temperature that it can finally be forged. You need steel not to be at 700 degrees, you need it to be at 2,000 degrees. At 2,000 degrees, it's no longer gray, and it no longer feels like steel. It's almost liquid. It's on fire, it's orange, and it's, it seems to be almost oozy, and it's in that vulnerable place that God begins to shape. Dr. King became the leader of the civil rights movement when he was 26 years old. 26. Do you remember when you were 26? Remember what it was like to be 26? If there's any 26-year-olds, you can go, yeah, yeah, I know what it's like, right? 26 years old. 26 years old, he was told, we'd like you to be the leader of the Montgomery bus boycott. A boycott that would extend over a year asking people who needed public transportation in order to feed their families to give up public transportation. In a world where there was no Ubers, there was, they had to organize their own carpools, they had to walk wherever they went to not lose their jobs. He had to hold them together in the protest of the Montgomery bus boycott for a year. And you can imagine that that was a long year that went really hard. And there were moments when people would waver. And he said one night, in the middle of the night, he wrote in his journal that if I could get out of this without people thinking I'm a coward, I would quit right now. Ever had that experience? He said that's where the Lord met him, in that moment. He said, Martin, he said, I heard the Lord say to him, Martin Luther, this is where you will find out that I will be with you always. And over and over again, when he hit these moments, he'd come back to that moment as the place where God met him in the honesty of his vulnerable self-reflection. And I can't help but believe that that's what had happened to him the night before he stood before a group of people and said to them, I wanna live a long life, everybody wants to do so, there's something good about that. 
but I have come to the mountainside and I've looked at the promised land and I may not get there with you, but my eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the next day, the assassin's bullet took him. We need to be able to be the kind of people who can be so vulnerable before the Lord that he can meet us there and shape us. And most of us have learned not to be vulnerable because we want to stay at 700 degrees. We want to look like we have control. And we fear what will happen if other people were to actually know that God has to keep working on us to make us into the leader that we are to be. It's dangerous to live at 700 degrees. We need to become people who have practices of self-reflection, vulnerable self-reflection, where we're able to be honest before God, where we can pray with the Psalms, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, my anxious thoughts, not theirs, mine. See if there's any hurtful way in me because anxious people end up hurting people and lead me in the way everlasting. The first part of the process is to let yourself be thrown into the fire until you get to 2,000 degrees. Not just the fire of the conflict and the resistance and the leadership, but the fire of your own self-reflection on what it's doing to you, which is why this morning I asked you to think about your own failure of nerve or failure of heart. And I'm going to guess that at least somebody in this room thought, I don't want to think about that. I don't want to go back there. Or the time that you've been sabotaged and now you have words for it. And you know that if you let yourself think about that at all, you're going to be so angry. You don't know if you'll ever come back. Do you know what it's like to be able to be so honest before the Lord that it feels as if you are oozing and here God can begin to shape you and form you? In the blacksmithing class, after they gave us the lectures and then we had the, had the steel in the fire for a while, they finally said, okay, look in now. Notice that the steel is now molten red. Notice that it is almost liquid. Reach in with the tongs, pull it out. Notice that gravity makes it bend. <sighs> Don't carry it around the shop. Don't try to twist it into shape. Do not hit it with a hammer, it will explode. Instead, just take it and put it on an anvil. The only safe place for something this hot is on an anvil. The center of the blacksmithing experience is not the hammering, and it's not even the forge, the fire. It's the anvil. When you walk in the room, they have you put your name on an anvil. That was the first picture that I showed you. This is the space where the formation happens. And the anvil of formation is our relationships. The second principle is that the vulnerability of leadership requires the security of relationships. And let me tell you something about relationships and leadership that we know from the research. The older you get, the less relationships you have. The higher up you get in authority or leadership, the less relationships you have. And if you're a man, you didn't start with enough to start with. So it means that by the time you get to the moment where you are facing the resistance, the mountain of despair, you usually experience yourself being profoundly alone. And there are way too many of us 
who somehow believe that that's the way it's supposed to be. We don't even see in the scripture how we were told from the very beginning it is not good for Adam to be alone. About how Moses is told that he's not supposed to be alone. How David creates and does his worst sin when he sends off his military uh, um, leaders and he's alone. How when you put leaders alone, they get dangerous. And many of us have experienced the loneliness especially if you go into church planting, right? You've gone from a church team or a group of people and you're out there by yourself. That loneliness is soul-sucking to us and dangerous to other people. So we need thick, heavy relationships. Think of an anvil that's hard to pick up as the sum total of the relationships that hold us when we are at 2,000 degrees, So let me have you think about your relationships. You can do this right here before we go home, right? Just even now, as you're sitting here, I want you to consider the relationships you have that can hold you when you are at 2,000 degrees. If what you need is the vulnerability of being open before the Lord for him to shape you, and you need to be held by those relationships, just in the quiet of your own heart, do a little assessment. Here's a simple way to think about it. A thick, heavy anvil has three types of relationships. Every leader needs partners, mentors, and friends. All three. Partners, mentors, and friends. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the church world is that that seems to get swirled together. And that's one of the beautiful parts of it, right? We get to do ministry with people who are friends and our friends join us in ministry and we live life with these people and we do life on life with them. And it's amazing and it's good. And it's healthy. But for this exercise, what I want you to do is I want you to take a deep, deeper anal- an analytical look at your relationships. Not all swirled together, but divided up into these categories. Just if you had to take the names of the people whose faces are in front of you right now and put them in a category, just do it mentally, or even you can write it down if you want. Who are your partners? My partners are people who care more about the mission than they care about me. I work with and love working with people who care about me. I love my team. I love the people that I'm with. We have deep relationships. It's part of the joy of the ministry, but a true partner is a person who as much as they love me, they are more committed to the mission. And Is there anybody in your ministry who is more committed to the mission than they are to you? Those are your partners. Now, I learned this when I was pastoring. I had a friend, a person who'd become a friend. He was a great guy. He he uh, was 12 years older than me. We used to ski together and hike together and exercise together and spend a lot of time together. And I learned a lot from him. He was a businessman. He had five kids. His kids were teenagers when my kids were toddlers. His kids were getting married when my kids were teenagers. His kids are now having kids, and my kids are taking their sweet time. And, and I would go to him, and I would say to him, man, you are like not only a good friend, but people in this church respect you and love you. Would you be willing to come on our board? Uh, Presbyterians, Presbyterians, we call that a session. It's your elder board. Would you be willing to come on our board? And he would say to me, no. You know, and I, you know I'm busy the, building the business. It's a lot. I got five kids. I got to get them through college. You know, someday come back. But no. And I'd give him a pass, and I, I'd talk to him, and he would be a good friend for me. And as the years went by, eventually I did four weddings for four of his daughters. <laughs> 
and his fifth son, his fifth kid, his son, went off to college. And I looked at him and said, hey, look, I think, I think you pretty well got him launched. And your business is doing really, really well. I'm wondering if now you'd be willing to come on the session. And he looked at me and said, no, I, I don't think I should. And I played the pastor card on him. I try not to do this to friends, but I did. I looked at him and said, look, I wonder if God wants you to pray about this. I think, the, I think our church could use your leadership skills. You're loved. You're respected. I, I really want you to pray about this. And he stopped me. We we're in the middle of a walk. And he looked at me and he said, Todd, you don't get it. I love our church. But I love you and Beth so much more. And if push comes to shove, I could never make a decision that I thought would hurt you for a minute. And that's really bad for the church. That's how churches get toxic. You need leaders who love you and are committed to you, but are committed to the mission even more. Think about this. We have mental models. We've been mentored by people who have told us that the most important thing is their loyalty to the leader. I've got a colleague now who's a doctoral student who is working on a project about dysfunctional leadership organizations, and almost all of them have what we would call a loyalty culture, where loyalty to the leader is more important than commitment to the mission. And some of you know that experience. And just let me just say this for free. If anybody asks you for loyalty, a flag should go off. And if you're asking the people who are on your team for personal loyalty, I want to challenge you to take a step back and consider what that's about. We need partners who are committed to the mission. It means that if God was to call me onto something else, somebody else would keep going. It means that if I had to pull back because my health was in problems, somebody else would pick up the baton and go. If I needed to be able to step aside to take care of my family, somebody else would say, we love you, but we'll keep it going because the mission is more than just you. Partners are people who care more about the mission than they care about me. Friends are people who care more about me than the mission. And you need those people in your life too. You need people in your life who say, I'm committed to the church. I love what we're doing. I love being part of a church planting. But the truth of the matter is, it's you. I love you. My friends are the people who come to me and say stuff like, Todd, I heard that you got a new book out. I go, I do. You want to read it? And they go, no. <laughs> go talk to the Baptists about that. They're not interested in the mission the way I am. They're interested in me. And you need people in your life who will look at you and say, I'm on, I'm with you. This is what friends are. Do you know who those people are? Do you know who you could call? Do you know the person who's not going to freak out if you say to them, I'm in a hard spot? And instead, they're going to be grateful because you're friends. Partners are people who care more about the mission than they care about me. Friends are people who care more about me than they do the mission. Mentors, mentors are people who care about me so that I can be faithful to God's mission. They care about me, but more than me. They're like friends with a purpose. Mentors is where I put the category of spiritual directors or therapists or coaches or maybe just a person who is a mentor and you know the reason why you're meeting together is because your job is to show up at 2,000 degrees. You don't go there to impress that person. You go there to lean on that person and that person can handle that. That mentoring experience, that 
experience of having someone who is holding you and coaching you and supporting you should be normal for all of us. So let me just say this. Um, I'm a Presbyterian. I don't believe in bishops. And I know most of you are Baptists and you don't have bishops. And there's a few Lutherans that might have a bishop. But let me just tell you this. If I was a bishop, now you know that I have bishop fantasies. That's more than you need to know, right? If I was a bishop and I had spiritual authority in your life and I found out that you were leading anything, anything, without a spiritual director or a therapist or a coach or a mentor, I would consider that leadership malpractice. You are dangerous if you do it by yourself. If LeBron James needs a coach, you need a coach, right? One of the best parts about being part of an organization like this is there's resources all around you. You can simply ask today, and there are people in this room who will give you business cards or connections this afternoon. You are not alone. If you don't have resources, it's not because you don't have them. And I work with pastors all over the world who don't have those resources. Our company exists to provide some of those resources, but you've got them all around you. And here's the most interesting thing about it. Your willingness to be open to mentoring is central to your experience of growth. They've done lots of studies on the fact that youth mentoring programs tend to do really well, right? Think about Young Life and Youth for Christ and Boys and Girls Club and My Brother's Keeper. Like they're, they're huge. They do huge things in people's lives. Some of us could give testimony about that. But adult mentoring programs don't tend to do very well. Even Fortune 500 companies have a hard time getting really good adult mentoring programs. So a friend of mine did a research grant on this and, and did a grant with the Murdoch Foundation to explore why. And here's what they found out. In youth mentoring, the mentor has to hold the energy for the relationship. You know this, you did this for years when you did youth ministry, right? You're calling the kids, you're texting them, you're checking in with them, you go to their games, you wanna make sure they know they're important. The mentor holds the relationship. In adult mentoring, the mentee has to hold the relationship. You have to be more committed to your learning and to your growing than the mentor is to giving you advice. You have to own that. So when I work with my doctoral students, we're going through a three-year process of leading change. In the whole second year, they all have to go out and get either a therapist, a spiritual director, a coach, or a mentor. And they've got to do six months minimum of mentored relationships just for themselves, just to go through our doctoral program and they have to go and find those people. And very, very often they'll say to me stuff like, how do you find a really good mentor? And let me just give you, here it is. This is, a, this is for free, okay? You get this for free, here's how you do it. You learn one question, and the question is this. Feel free to write it down. The question is, may I buy you a cup of coffee? <laughs> go to somebody who you know can hold you, who, can hold, who you trust who can hold you at 2,000 degrees. Go to someone who you look at their life and you realize they've either gone through pain or they've been trustworthy or they're people who I know I can trust, I can go to, and ask them, can I buy you a cup of coffee? Get 30 minutes of their time and show up at 2,000 degrees. Don't show up at 700 trying to impress them. Don't try to see if you can uh, swing a deal with them. Don't try to see if they can become someone who might wanna support your ministry. No, they got one job. Their job is to be the anvil, the center of the anvil. 
that holds you at 2,000 degrees. And that becomes the beginning of it. I came to Houston to meet with all of you. This morning, I had breakfast with my mentor so that we could have time together that I could say to him, I need you to pray for me about this and about this and about this. And we could check in together. It's normal. It's natural. You should be doing it all the time. My company is called A.E. Sloan Leadership. It's named after Al and Enid Sloan of Alburnett, Iowa. Al was the president of a real estate company in Southern California. Then he retired. He became an elder in our church. And he was on the nominating committee that brought me to San Clemente Presbyterian Church. I was 33 years old when they called me in to be my first senior pastor position. It was his voice on the other end of the phone when I picked it up that changed my life. Reverend Bolsinger? Is it Bolsinger or Bolsinger? How do you say that? Bolsinger. I'm Al Sloan from San Clemente Presbyterian Church. I'm on the nominating committee. I want to talk to you about our open pastoral position. Six months later, I was there in San Clemente. The day that the first day in town, we were stacked in our rental house with boxes to the ceiling. We had a three-year-old son and a three-month-old daughter. It was my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, honey. Sorry we're so, dis- we're so disappoint- uh, d- disconnected here. I got to go to a presbytery meeting. I pull a, s- pull a suit out of a box. I put it on. Al picks me up, drives me to the presbytery meeting. Enid, his wife, comes over and holds our daughter all day so that we could start unpacking boxes so that Beth could start on her birthday making a home for us so that we could begin to settle into our life. Al went to the Presbytery meeting and introduced me to every single person there. Come meet Todd. He's my pastor. I was 33. I'd never had an older man call me his pastor before. They gave themselves to us. They supported us and served us. He became a mentor. He would have been a president of a company. He taught me how to lead a church. I went to him one day and I said, Al, you've given so much to me. Why? And he said, when I was called to be on the PNC, we had no idea who God was going to bring to become our next pastor. We had no idea. But we went before the Lord and the Lord said to us, whoever comes, you are going to do everything for the rest of your life to make sure they have a good a great ministry and a great life. I told that story a hundred times. I can't get through it. Because they were there, the center of our anvil, taking care of us, supporting us, coaching us, loving us. Do you have people like that in your life? We named our company after them because our whole company is about helping faith leaders thrive as change leaders. It's not just teaching you the nuts and bolts of change. It's helping you become a person who can continually lead change, big change, comprehensive change. If I was a bishop, I would ensure that you have somebody in your life who is a mentor. If you can learn to be a mentee, if you can show up when you're facing that mountain of despair, and if you can ask yourself those deep questions at that moment, and you can let yourself be vulnerable to hold you and then find safe places to put yourself on that anvil, then God can continue to do his work in shaping you into a tool, a tempered tool that can hew stones of hope out of a mountain of despair. Whenever I teach on this, people always say to me, that blacksmithing metaphor is really pretty powerful, but is there something about the raw material 
Isn't there some kind of character that a leader needs to have in order to be able to be shaped? And the answer is yes. And it's actually kind of interesting. I could, I could, if I had more time, I'd go into more detail with you about it. But literally, in the biblical literature, the Anderson of the character of a leader is a person who has to have their life grounded in Christ and not in the approval of your people. You have to have your life grounded in Christ and not in the approval of your people. It's the only way you'll be able to take them through transformation, the only way you'll be able to disappoint them. In the leadership literature that draws from psychology, that's called self-differentiation. Your capacity to have a strong identity and stay connected to your people. So here's what I want you to think about. The, The bottom line, the core identity of a change leader is someone's identity must be grounded in something other than their success in leading change. This is the great irony, right? You want to become a resilient leader, you've got to be able to be more vulnerable. You want to become a tempered, resilient leader, then you've got to be able to not to be, understand that you can't do it by yourself. You need more relationships. And if you want to be a person who can bring change in the face of resistance, you've got to care more about something else than your success at bringing change. If you wake up in the morning and you think, I do not want this church to fail on my watch. I don't want this to be another thing that was thrown into my face. I don't want to let my dad have one more opportunity to say you are nothing, that you are no good. If you're doing ministry that you need success to prove your identity, you will be brittle. Your identity must be grounded in something other than your need to be a success in leading change. And if you don't believe me, Believe Jesus. (laughs) Mark chapter one, the message version. At this time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. The moment he came out of the water, he saw the sky split open and God's spirit looking like a dove come down on him. And along with the spirit, a voice. You are my son. You are my daughter, chosen, by my, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. When did Jesus hear that God was proud of him? Before he'd done anything. The most powerful part of this whole message to me is at this time, before he had preached a sermon, before he'd done a miracle, before he cast out a demon, before he confronted a power, before he'd even revealed to, him, to anybody who he was. The only one who had any inkling of who he was was his crazy cousin. <laughs> and he went out to the desert to see his crazy cousin. It's the voice of the Spirit that says, you are chosen, marked by my love, pride of my life. If you hear nothing else from this day, hear two things. You will not become resilient by trying harder. Don't try to outwork this problem. And you have nothing to prove. God is already proud of you. You are marked by his love. So go lead. God bless you as you do.